bless his word to our hearts, our minds, our souls, even as we have read, and now as the word of God is preached unto us. If you'd like to take your Bibles and turn with me to the text for the sermon today, I would have you to turn to Luke chapter 19. And I'll just, uh, at this point, we'll be working our way through verses 1 through 10, but I'd like to focus attention at this point simply on verse 5, so I'll read for you verse 5, Luke 19, 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. This Lord's Day, we are invited by Christ to sit with him at his banqueting table and to feast upon him and all the riches of his benefits to our own spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Whereas baptism is administered only once, so as to emphasize the promise of union with Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is administered many times, so as to emphasize the promise of communion with Jesus Christ. Dear ones, what would a marriage be like if a couple were only united in marriage but had no communion in marriage with one another. There may be a legal union in such a marriage, but it falls far short of what a marriage is intended to be. And beloved, likewise, our union with Jesus Christ is not an end in itself but is the foundation, if you will, which leads to our communion with Jesus Christ as his bride. The sinless Son of God invites us as his bride to come to this love feast that has been prepared for us by him, wherein we might be strengthened in our faith to trust him, comforted with hope, to persevere in him and enlarged in our love to obey him. The wonders of Christ's mercy to us could not be made more clear, I believe, than in our text this Lord's Day. From our text in Luke 19, let us consider the following main points. Number one, the unworthiness of the sinner in Luke 19, 1-2. Secondly, the invitation of grace in Luke 19, verses 3-5. And then number three, the evidence of faith in Luke 19, verses 6-10. First of all, then, the unworthiness of the sinner. Consider with me the first two verses of Luke chapter 19. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he 
was rich. As the Lord heads for Jerusalem for the last time before his death, he passes through the town of Jericho. And there Christ has preordained a meeting with a publican or a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name. He was a a Jewish man, which has the meaning of pure. Although it may have been the prayer of his parents that Zacchaeus have a pure heart toward God, his life up to this point was far from pure. For as we read in Luke 19.2, he was a publican or a tax collector, and not simply a tax collector, but the chief tax collector in Jericho. And as a result of that, a very rich one. There was not a more hated and despised person in all of Palestine than the tax collector. And Zacchaeus was the leader among them, the chief among them. Tax collectors were identified as the chief of sinners in Matthew 9, verse 10. Matthew 9, verse 10 the chief of sinners. And they were placed alongside of harlots as the epitome of wickedness in the eyes of the Jewish people according to Matthew 21, verse 31. Tax collectors at that time were especially despised for the following four reasons. First of all, they worked for the Romans who occupied and ruled the homeland of the Jews. Secondly, they were legalized thieves in overcharging the people and pocketing whatever money did not go directly to the emperor. Thirdly, they used harsh threats and oppressive methods to harass the people and squeeze every little bit of money out of the poor. And finally, those tax collectors who were Jews like Zacchaeus, were even more despised for they had betrayed their own religion and their own people. Love for God and love for their neighbor had long been deserted for the greed of wealth and the oppression of the people. Zacchaeus, you might say, was the man whom people loved to hate. He thrived on taking advantage of people and hitting them when they were especially down. He didn't care about the feelings of people or how much it hurt. What he cared was how much he could line his own pocketbook. His greed had left him rich, but yet miserable and despised by others. Here was a very dishonest man who had climbed the ladder to the top wrong in his profession. Zacchaeus hardly seemed like a candidate to become a trophy of God's amazing grace. But dear ones, the very reason God has included this account of Zacchaeus in the scripture is to comfort and to encourage us that there is no sin nor wickedness so vile or so heinous that Christ cannot forgive 
Only blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can never be pardoned, which is to obstinately and habitually sin against the knowledge of Christ given by the Spirit in turning against Christ, in hating Him, and in hating His followers, and in wishing to pull down Christ from heaven that He might drive again those nails and spikes into His hands and into His feet. Such is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the impardonable sin. As far as Zacchaeus had gone to the depths of depravity, God would pardon yet his sins. Dear ones, if someone like Zacchaeus was not disqualified from coming to Christ, enjoying the benefits of salvation, neither will you be disqualified by your lack of righteousness or merit in God's sight. For all of us, every one of us, are Zacchaeus. All of us have robbed God, first of all. Robbed Him of His honor, of the reverence due Him. Robbed Him of loving worship. Robbed Him of the love and obedience that is due unto Him. And we've not only robbed God, but we've stolen from one another so that we have left an unfulfilled debt of love to one another as well. We all deserve, dear ones, to endure the eternal torments of hell that may become trite because I repeat it so common and so often. But let it not become trite and common to us. We all deserve eternal condemnation to spend all eternity in hell. Because we are each one a Zacchaeus. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this. Your sins do not, do not disqualify you from the love and the forgiveness of God. But actually your sins and your unrighteousness qualify you to come to Christ in order that you might not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. The second main point is this, the invitation of, of grace. Look with me at Luke 19, verses 3 through 5. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. <clears throat> Zacchaeus had evidently heard news of Jesus Christ. The reports of Christ's words and deeds had no doubt spread from one end of Palestine to the other, and even beyond the borders of Palestine. After all, how could news of one like Jesus be kept a secret? He raised the dead. He cast out demons from the oppressed. 
He multiplied bread and fish to feed literally thousands. He opened the ears of the deaf. He set free the tongues of the mute. Gave sight to the eyes of the blind. Caused the lame to leap for joy. And most recently, the Lord Jesus had healed a blind beggar on his way into Jericho by the name of Bartimaeus, according to Luke 18, verse 35. The curiosity of Zacchaeus was aroused to catch a glimpse of Christ as he walked by, according to Luke 19, 3. Although Zacchaeus was great in wealth, he was very small in stature. And as he ran along the road parallel to where Christ walked, he could not see past the people who lined the streets in front of him. And I would uh, think most likely that even if he had asked those, and perhaps he tried to ask those in front of him to allow him to get a peek at the Lord Jesus, his request would likely have fallen upon deaf ears the deaf ears of those whom he had so greatly wronged. Let this thief step in front of me? No way! Zacchaeus, being the resourceful man that he was, ran ahead of the crowd and found a large sycamore tree, which he climbed in order to get a bird's eye view of Christ as he walked by, according to Luke 19.4. Zacchaeus, dear ones, did not desire to find the most conspicuous place from which to look, but rather the least conspicuous place. For the sycamore tree would not only have large branches upon which he could perch, as it were, but also many leaves in order to hide him from the sight of others. From what it is stated here, it doesn't appear that Zacchaeus had any desire to personally meet the Lord Jesus Christ at all. He didn't desire to talk with Christ. He wasn't pursuing Christ. He simply wanted, out of curiosity, that's all that we know, to see Christ. This man concerning whom he had heard so much. He did not begin calling out from that tree like blind Bartimaeus just a little time before this. You remember blind Bartimaeus cried out from the crowd, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the more they told him to be quiet, the louder he shouted. Zacchaeus was curious, but there is no indication that he had faith in Christ or was moved out of love for Christ to climb this tree to see him. Remember, Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus, who he was, it says in Luke 19.3. He sought to see him. The text does not say he sought to know Jesus. doesn't say he sought to believe in Jesus. does not say he sought to love Jesus. He sought to see him. This is clearly then not a case of Zacchaeus reaching out to Christ in his own strength, that is, doing his own part, And wanting Christ to, in effect, do his part. Zacchaeus is not initiating the process here. 
where he is going after the Lord Jesus Christ by way of some desire or willingness on his part. Romans 3.11 says, There is none that seeketh after God. Zacchaeus was not seeking after Christ in his own strength. Dear ones, what this true account of Zacchaeus does reveal is that Christ goes out and finds the lost sinner and calls him by his word unto himself. Who was seeking whom here? It was not an earnest Zacchaeus who was seeking a savior, but a merciful savior who was seeking a wicked Zacchaeus. And Christ always finds the lost sinner for whom he seeks. He always gets his man. He always gets his woman. He always gets his child. And he never loses one of them. When the Lord gets to the precise spot where Zacchaeus was hiding in that sycamore tree, peering through the leaves and branches, Christ stops and looks up into the tree and commands Zacchaeus to come down. Why? Jesus said, For today I must abide at thy house. Luke 19.5 Here is one of the most glorious pictures of salvation if we but have the eyes to see. One of the most glorious pictures of salvation in all of the scripture. For the call of the gospel to Zacchaeus was not simply that Christ enter his house but that Christ abide and commune with him and his family in his house. Here the Lord shows forth incomprehensible mercy and love for sinners, the chief of sinners. For he not only wills to be in union with sinners, to enter the house, as it were, but also wills to be in communion with sinners, to abide and commune with them in their house. When the glorified Christ walked among the churches in Revelation uh, chapters 2 through 3, his eyes of fire pierced the hearts of some hypocrites who were comfortably seated as members in the church of Laodicea, who self-righteously declared themselves to be spiritually rich and needing nothing more from Christ. But the Lord declares to these hypocrites that they are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked in their souls. The Lord then offers his salvation to these self-righteous hypocrites in one of the most familiar invitations in all of Scripture. In Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man... Hear my voice and open the door. I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Here again, is it not clear that Christ offers himself as a savior and friend to sinners? You'll recall that the Pharisees mocked the Lord Jesus Christ as being, quote unquote, the friend of sinners. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Why did they mock him and call him that? Because he sat down with them 
at meals in order to draw them graciously unto himself. Those sinners who by God's grace hear and open by faith the door to Christ are united to Christ. Christ comes in, but salvation does not stop with Christ coming in. He sups with them and they with him in precious fellowship and communion as a loving husband with his beloved bride. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4 says, and the bride is speaking, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. Beloved, as glorious as is our forgiveness of sin in Christ and is accounting us righteous in Christ and our adoption as the sons of God and all the promises of God that are ours in Christ Jesus, that blessing which all other blessings prepare us to enjoy is our communion with Jesus Christ. There was the greatest gift and blessing God gives to us as an unworthy Zacchaeus is himself. I will dwell with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What greater display of love can a husband show his wife than to say, I want to spend time with you. I long when I'm away to get back where we can spend time together and we can share our burdens one with another. I love you and I desire you more than anyone else in this world. Every wife would be delighted to hear that from her husband. That is fellowship and that is communion. That's which, that is which the, uh, the union looks to is that kind of communion in a marriage and likewise with Christ. The very Christ, dear ones, that we have spurned many times by making excuses as to why we cannot spend time with Him in communion and prayer is the very same Christ that prepares this table of fellowship for us that we might be reassured through this sacrament of His everlasting love for us, His undeserving and unworthy bride. This meal, beloved, is a foretaste of our eternal communion with Jesus Christ in heaven. <clears throat> Dear ones, how can we earnestly, sincerely long for eternal communion with Christ and not desire temporal communion with Christ here on earth? In our secret worship, in our family worship, in our Sabbath worship, and at the Lord's table. If we desire that communion with Christ forever and ever, we must pray, God, give me that same desire of communion with Thee every day. Beloved, communion with Christ is not optional in the life of the Christian. For the Lord tells Zacchaeus, I must 
abide at thy house. Literally, it is necessary that I abide at thy house. Dear ones, there are no Christians who enjoy only union with Christ, but not communion with Christ. There is not such a person. Otherwise, God would have given us only one sacrament, namely baptism, which simply emphasizes our union with Christ. But Christ has left us with a second sacrament to reveal to us our continual need of the Lord Jesus Christ for our spiritual life. Just as you will certainly die if you do not receive nourishing food and drink on a regular basis. So, you will die if you do not receive spiritual food and drink on a regular basis. Christ, having perfectly kept the law of God for his elect bride, suffered in his body the infinite wrath of God and died in shedding his blood to remove from that unworthy bride the guilt and condemnation of sin forever. When we sit today at the Lord's Supper and around this table, Christ is as much present to us by faith as the bread which we eat and the wine which we drink. He is spiritually with us. Christ is the host at this holy meal and he gives to us himself and all of his benefits that we might be refreshed with a renewed faith in his promises and his faithfulness in His love, in His truthfulness, in His mercy, in His righteousness, and in His power to save. The Lord's Supper, dear ones, is not a magical meal wherein the physical body and blood of the Lord are actually eaten with our mouths as taught by Papists and Lutherans. But rather it is a sacramental meal wherein by these symbols of bread and wine, Christ and every benefit purchased by our Savior is signed, sealed, and made over to us His bride, and we receive them in faith as we eat the bread and drink the cup. The preaching of the gospel, dear ones, is the laying out of the promises of God to guilty, unworthy sinners. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is the signature of Christ to those promises that they all freely belong to believers. This meal is his signature to all the promises God has made to you. He's left this with us to confirm and to testify to the truthfulness of his promises that he's not lying that you can count on every promise that God has made to His people. As truly as the bread and wine is eaten and drank in faith, so truly is the bread of heaven ours by faith. The third and final point is the evidence of faith. In Luke 9, 19, I'm sorry, Luke 19, verses 6 through 10. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. There are two evidences of the faith of Zacchaeus mentioned in our text. <clears throat> the first is his joy in the Lord in Luke 19.6 where it says, And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Dear ones, <clears throat> when Christ is our life, when Christ is our joy, our peace, and our contentment, we will enjoy communion with the Lord. This is a great evidence of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we enjoy the Lord. Being a Christian, dear ones, has its trials and afflictions and suffering. It has its mourning and grieving and sorrowing over sin and confessing sin. But dear ones, never forget that one of the greatest demonstrations of a person who's been saved by the grace of God is enjoyment. Enjoyment of Jesus Christ. Communion with Jesus Christ. Laying there and bathing, as it were, in the sunshine of His grace and mercy, trying to take as much of it in as you possibly can. And that's why it is so important. We don't simply tell you, and nor does the Scripture tell you, to avail yourselves of the means of grace on a regular basis because it's a mere command and God just wants you to do it because He wants you to do it. But this is the chosen means that God has given to you that you might bask in the wonders of His grace and His mercy and His love. The second evidence is the obedience of Zacchaeus, which no doubt is motivated by his love for the Lord. In Luke 19.8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Who is willing to practice a just recompense for what he had done by way of sinning, stealing, robbing, whatever he had done in order to get to where he was. He was willing to deal with it be accountable and to obey the Lord. He voluntarily made restitution to all those that he had robbed. The scripture says, dear ones, faith without works is dead. Zacchaeus manifested his faith by his loving obedience. And so must we. Beloved, Christ did not come to call the righteous to salvation, but rather the wicked God does not justify the godly, but the ungodly. 
Saving grace is not needed to those who are sinless, sinless, but is needed by those who are sinners. If you know yourself to be a sinner who has violated the perfect law of God and deserves the infinite wrath of God, you can be a trophy of God's amazing grace today through faith alone in Jesus Christ. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the Apostle Paul said, of whom I am chief. And the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, according to Luke 19.10. Therefore, the amazing promise that is held out to all of us who are Zacchaeus, that is, to all sinners, is that same promise that was read for the call to worship today from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. And listen, listen again to this invitation. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The only qualifications listed here, dear ones, in Isaiah 55.1 are that you be spiritually dying of hunger and thirst, that you be spiritually bankrupt. And we all fall into that category. None are disqualified. If you know that you are spiritually dead and bankrupt apart from Christ, you are invited to come to Christ that you might find life and righteousness in Him who alone is our life and righteousness. The Lord's Supper, dear ones, is not for perfect Christians, but for weak, struggling Christians. For Christ will not break the bruised reed, nor will He quench the smoking flax. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.